Chapter 21 of Four Girls at Chautauqua. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Girls at Chautauqua by Pansy. Chapter 21 A Sense of Duty. It is not so easy to get away from oneself as you might think if you never had occasion to try it. Ruth Erskine, who honestly thought herself on the high road to heaven because she had decided to offer herself for church membership as soon as she returned from Saratoga, did not find the comfort and rest of heart that so heroic a resolution ought to have brought. It was in vain that she endeavored to dismiss the subject and try to decide just what new costume the Saratoga trip would demand. If she could only have gotten away from the crowd of people and out of that meeting, back to the quiet of her tent, she might have succeeded in arranging her wardrobe to her satisfaction. But she was completely hedged in from any way of escape, and the inconsiderate speakers constantly made allusions that thrust the arrow further into her brain. I am not sure that it could have been said to have reached her heart. Who is to blame that you cannot all be addressed as workers for Christ? Who is your master? Why do you not serve him? These were sentences that struck in upon her just as she was deciding to have a new summer silk, trimmed with shearings of the same material a shade darker. Workers! She did not know whether the speaker gave a peculiar emphasis to that word, or whether it only sounded so to her ears. Did this resolution that she had made put her among the workers? What was she ready to do? Teach in the Sabbath school? Involuntarily she shrugged her shoulders. She did not like children. Tract distributing, too, was hateful work, and out of style she had heard someone say. What wonderful work was to be done? She was sure she didn't know. Sewing certainly wasn't in her line. She couldn't make clothes for the poor. But then she could give money to buy them with. Oh, yes, she was perfectly willing to do that. And then she tried to determine whether it would be well to get a new black grenadine or whether a black silk would suit her better. She had got it trimmed with four rows of knife pleating, headed with puffs, when she was suddenly returned to the meeting. Somebody was telling a story. She had not been giving sufficient attention to know who the speaker was, but he told his story remarkably well. It must have been about a miserable little street boy who was sick, and another miserable street boy seemed to be visiting him. This is where her ears took it up. It was up a rickety pair of stairs, and another, and another, to a filthy garret. There lay the sick boy burning with a fever, mother and father both drunk, and no one to do anything or care anything for the boy who was fighting with death. Ben, said his dirty-faced visitor, bending over him, you're pretty bad, ain't you? Ben, do you ever pray? No, says Ben, turning fevered eyes on the questioner. I don't know what that is. Do you know there was a man once named Jesus Christ? He came to this world on purpose to save people who are going to die. Did you ever be told about him? No, who is he? Why, he is God. You have to believe on him. I don't know what you mean. Why, ask him to save you. When you die, you ask him to take you and save you. I heard about him at school. Will he do it? Yes, he will, sure. Them says so as have tried him. Silence in the garret, Ben with his face turned to the wall, the fever growing less, the pulse growing fainter. Suddenly he turns back. I've asked him, he said. I've asked him, and he said he would. 
Ruth looked about her nervously. People were weeping softly all around her. Marion brushed two great tears from her glowing cheeks, and Ruth, with her heart beating with such a quickened motion that it made her faint, wondered what was the matter with everyone, and wished this dreadful meeting was over, or that she had gone to Saratoga on Saturday. It was hard to go back to the puffs on that grenadine dress in the midst of all this, but with a resolute struggle she threw herself back into an argument as to whether she would stop on her way to make purchases, or run down to Albany as soon as she was comfortably settled at her hotel. Mr. Bliss was the next one who roused her. Have you never heard him sing? Then I am sorry for you. How can I tell you anything about it? You should hear Ruth tell it, how his voice rolled out and up from under those grand old trees, how distinctly every word fell on your ear, as distinctly as though you and he had been together in a little room alone, and he had sung it for you. This loving Savior stands patiently, though oft rejected, calls again for thee, calling now for thee, prodigal, calling now for thee. Thou hast wandered far away, but he's calling now for thee. What was the matter with everybody? Was this an army of prodigals who had gathered under the trees the Sabbath afternoon? Turning where she would, they were wiping away the tears. She felt herself as if she could hardly keep back her own. And yet why should she weep? What had that song to do with her? She certainly was not a prodigal. She had never wandered, for she had never professed to be a Christian. What strange logic! that because I have never owned my father's love and care, therefore I am not a wanderer from him. Ruth did not understand it. She felt almost provoked. Had she not decided this very afternoon and for the first time in her life that it was fitting and eminently the proper thing to do to unite with the church, and had she not determined upon doing it just as soon as the season was over? What more could she do? Why could she not now have a little peace? If this was the comfort and rest that the Christians at Chautauqua had been talking about for a week, she was sure the less she had of them the better, for she never felt so uncomfortable in her life. Nevertheless, she adhered to her resolution. So settled was she that it was the next proper thing to do that she stayed at home from the meeting that evening to write a letter to Mr. Wayne, the gentleman who you will perhaps remember accompanied the girls to the depot on the morning of their departure, and expressed his disgust with the whole plan. As this is the first religious letter Miss Ruth Erskine ever wrote, you shall be gratified with a copy of it. Dear Harold, I am alone in the tent this evening. The girls have all gone to meeting. But I, finding it exhaustive, not to say tiresome, to be so constantly listening to sermons, have stayed at home to write to you. I have something to tell you which I know will please you. I am going to start for Saratoga tomorrow morning. I think I shall take the 10.50 train. Now don't you make up your mind to laugh at me and say that I have grown tired of Chautauqua sooner than any of the rest. It is true enough. You know my mode of life, and my enjoyments are necessarily very different from Yuri's and Marion's. These two naturally look upon this place as an escape from everyday drudgery. In short, as an economical place in which to enjoy a vacation, and see a good deal of first-class society. For there are a great many first-class people here, there is no denying that. Not many from our set, you know, but a great many celebrities in the literary world that it is really very pleasant to see. I am not sorry that I came. 
for if nothing else I am glad to have come on the girls' account. They would hardly have ventured without me, and it is a real treat to them. You will wonder what has become of poor little Flossy, and want to know whether she is going to follow me to Saratoga as usual, but the little sprite refuses to go. I fancy Marion has been teasing her. You know how she is very susceptible to ridicule, and it suits Marion's fancy to amuse herself at the expense of those people who weary of Chautauqua. She has attempted something of the kind on me, but of course I am indifferent to any such shafts, having been in the habit of leading rather than following all my life. It seems natural, I suppose, to do so still. I think well of Chautauqua. It is a good place for people to come who have not much money to spend, and who like to be in a pleasant place among pleasant people, and who enjoy fine music and fine lectures and all that sort of thing, and are so trammeled by work and small means at home that they cannot cultivate these tastes. But of course all these things are no treat to me, and I do not hesitate to tell you that I am bored. There is too much preaching to suit my fancy, not real preaching either, for we haven't had what you would call a sermon until today, but lectures, which constantly bring the same theme before you. Now you are not to conclude from this that I do not believe in preaching and Sunday and all that sort of thing. On the contrary, I believe more fully in them all than I did before I came. In fact, I have this very afternoon come to a determination which may surprise you, and which is partly the occasion of my writing this letter, in order that you may know at once what to expect. Harold, as soon as the season is over and I get back home, I am going to unite with the church. Have I astonished you? I am going to do this from a conviction of duty. You need not imagine that I have been wrought up to such a pitch of excitement that I don't know what I am about. I assure you there is nothing of the kind. I have simply concluded that it is an eminently proper thing to do. So long as I believe fully in the church and in religion, and wish to sustain both by my money and my influence, why should I not say so? That is a very simple and altogether proper way of saying it, and saves a good deal of troublesome explanation. I wonder that I haven't thought of it before. I do not mind telling you that it was some remarks of Marion's that first suggested the propriety of this thing to me. You know she is an infidel, and I am not, and she intimated what is true enough, that I lived exactly as though I thought just as she did. So in thinking it over I concluded it was true, and that my influence ought to be with the church in this matter. Now you know, Harold, that with me to decide is to do. So this is as good as done. I should like it very well if you choose to come to the same conclusion and unite at the same time that I do. I am sure Dr. Dennis would be gratified. I don't know why we shouldn't be willing to have it known where we stand, and I know you respect the church and trust her as well as I do myself. I told Marion today, I do not see how a person with brains could be an infidel or something to that effect, and I don't. I think that is such a silly view to take of life, just as if everything could come by chance. And if God did not make everything, who did? I have no patience with that sort of thing, and I am glad to remember that you have no such tastes. By the way, are the Arnots in Saratoga? I hope not, for they are such fanatics there is no comfort in meeting them, and yet one has to be civil. Seems to me you do not enjoy the opera as well as usual, nor the hops either. What is the matter? Do you really miss me? 
If there is any such foolish fancy in your heart as that, prepare to enjoy yourself next week, for I shall be with you at every one of them after Tuesday. It will take me until then to get something decent to wear. I hear the girls coming up the hill, and I must leave you. Au revoir, Ruth. Folding and addressing this epistle with a satisfied air, and still full of the spirit which had prompted her to write a religious letter, Ruth, finding that Marion had come in alone, and that Flossie and Yuri were still loitering up the hill, gave herself the satisfaction of communicating her change of views. I have been thinking a good deal about what you said this afternoon, Marion, and there is truth in it. I do not think as you do, and I ought to take some measures to let people know it. I have the most perfect respect for and confidence in religion, and I mean to prove it by uniting with the church. I have decided to attend to that matter as soon as I get home again after the season is over. I am surprised at myself for not doing so before, for I certainly consider it eminently proper, in fact a duty. Now, it was very provoking to have so religious a sentence as this received in the manner that it was. Marian tilted her stool back against the bed, and gave herself up to the luxury of a ringing laugh. Really, Ruth said, you have returned from church in a very hilarious mood. Something very funny must have happened. It cannot be that anything in my sentence had to do with your amusement. Yes, but it has, squealed Marian, holding her sides and laughing still. Oh, Ruthie, Ruthie, you will be the death of me. And so you think that this is religion. You honestly suppose that standing up in church and having your name read off constitutes Christianity. Don't do it, Ruthie. You have never been a hypocrite, and I have always honored you because you were not. If this is all the religion you can find, go without it forever and ever, for I tell you there is not a single bit in it. Her laughter had utterly ceased, and her voice was solemn in its intensity. I don't know what you mean in the least, Ruth said testily. You are talking about something of which you know nothing. So are you. Oh, Ruthie, so are you. Yes, I know something about it. I know that you haven't reached the ABC of it. Why, Ruthie, do you remember that story this afternoon? Do you remember that little boy in the garret, how he turned his face to the wall and asked God to save him? Have you done that? Do you honestly think that you, Ruth Erskine, have anything to be saved from? Don't you know the little fellow said, he answered. Has he answered you? Why, Ruth, do you never listen to the church covenant? How does it read? That it is eminently fit and proper for those who believe that God made them to join the church? Ruth Erskine, you can never take more solemn vows upon you than you will have to take if you unite with the church, and I beg you not to do it. I tell you it means more than that. I had a father who was a member of the church, and he prayed. Oh, how he prayed! He was the best man who ever lived on earth. Everyone knew he was good. Everyone thought he was a saint. And it seems to me as though I could never love any God who did not give him a happier lot than he had as a reward for his holy life. But do you think he thought himself good? I tell you he felt that no one could be more weak and sinful and in need of saving than he was. Oh, I know the people who make up churches have more than this in them. I think it is all a deception, but it is a blessed one to have. I know these people at Chautauqua have it, hundreds of them. I see the same look in their faces that my father had in his, 
and if I could only get the same delusion into my heart, I would hug it for my blessed Father's sake. But don't you ever go into the church and subscribe to these things that they will ask of you until you have felt the same need of help and the same sense of being helped that they have. If you do, and there is a God, I would rather stand my chance with him than to have yours. And Marion seized her hat and rushed out into the night, leaving Ruth utterly dumbfounded. End of chapter 21 Recording by Tricia G.